Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 182, and we're going to talk about the six, six ways you can preserve your perishables in your van. We're going to talk about refrigerators, coolers, and that other option people always forget. We're also going to talk about how you can tell how many amp hours you can get out of a battery that only lists CCA. I will explain. And we're going to have a tale from the road that took place in Africa. And it was a little scary, but uh, I'll tell you about it. Anyway, thank you very much for joining me here today for episode 182. It seems like a big number. Look at that, 182. I've added a section. I asked the folks on Facebook whether they wanted me to delete a section or whatever, and everybody just said, just add a section. So I'm adding a section this time. It's called news. And I'm going to try now every week to have a little bit of van life news. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. But it's going to make the episode a little bit longer, like maybe five minutes longer. And if you don't like that, let me know. You can get a hold of me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. All right, so let's dive in here. There are six ways to approach perishable foods in your van, and we're going to talk about each one. The first way, and this is the one that everybody ignores for some reason, and yet it's the one we've been using for the longest period of time, is don't. <laughs> no, seriously. You don't need to keep your food cold. I mean, you need to keep perishables cold, of course, but... Folks, you don't have to have cold food. You don't have to bring those kind of perishables with you. Look at all the people out there who are just hiking or backpacking or doing the Appalachian Trail. They're not bringing refrigerators with them. They're not bringing coolers with them. They just plan around it. And this is the easiest, cheapest, simplest way to deal with this problem. You can buy fresh vegetables. You can buy canned vegetables. You can buy freeze-dried vegetables. There's all kinds of things you can do. And as far as meat goes, well, you can buy canned meat. You can buy dried meat. You can just not have meat. There's ways to handle it. And yeah, it's going to require you changing how you do things. Uh, and that's part of this, right? That's part of the travel experience. Here in the U.S., we're used to a glass of water appearing on the table at the restaurant whenever we sit down. And it will be cold. It will probably have ice in it. But if we go to Europe, that is not the custom. There isn't water going to magically appear. You have to ask for it. And you may have to pay for it. And then... It probably won't have ice in it because ice in drinks is mostly an American thing. We invented that and embraced it. And the rest of the world was like, they're a little strange over there. <laughs> so it reminds me of the Palm Pilots, actually. So you remember Palm Pilots? They were the first PDA personal digital assistant before everybody had smartphones. A lot of us had these little devices we carried in our pockets. I remember I had several. And it did text recognition because they couldn't find a good way to put a little keyboard on them. They figured, well, everyone knows how to handwrite. We'll just have it understand handwriting. But it didn't have great processing power. So it came with a game called Giraffe. And that game was there to teach you how to write in a way that the Palm Pilot would understand. You were the one adapting to the device. And we've kind of gotten away from that today. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that today you expect your device to do everything. You don't have to change. Your device has to change. Well, when you're living in a van or you're traveling this way, it's a lot easier for you to change. So first thing, 
make sure you actually want refrigeration or some of you need it for example some people take medications that need to be kept cold then yeah no i totally get it but uh yeah refrigeration is optional <laughs> the second option and we're going in order of kind of history here is a cooler and a lot of people use coolers and you can spend a dollar on a cooler or four hundred dollars on a cooler i mean you can get the big fancy yeti if you want or you can just get the styrofoam one or you can just stick a trash bag in a cardboard box i've done that many times coolers work they will keep your food fresh for a day or two or three depending on what kind of a cooler you have and you just have to get ice if you have access to ice it's very simple doesn't use any power you get it you've used coolers before but there are a lot of cons with coolers first off they don't last all that long you know you have to keep replenishing them with ice and for a lot of folks ice costs money and it doesn't take long to add up the cost of that ice and have it cost more than a refrigerator you know if you're paying three bucks a day for a bag of ice well you know do the math there that comes out to be a very very expensive way to keep your food cold also that ice takes up space so if you go out and buy a lot of food and you buy a lot of ice to keep the food cold you will very quickly realize that you don't often have enough space for both the ice and the food and that's no good so coolers are fine they're an inexpensive thing they're great for maybe a weekend here and there but they're definitely not a long-term solution so the next thing that came about is what's called the absorption fridge this is your classic rv fridge and i've got one in my scamp i've got one in my winnebago tiki bago and if you've ever had an old rv it almost surely had one of these types of fridges in them and they're still sold today and they come in two basic kinds the two-way in the three-way and we need to talk about this so the three-way which is the better is that they have propane or lpg we call it propane here in the u.s but a gas that burns that's what powers the fridge or they can use shore power or they can use the battery now there's a big misconception here the three-way absorption fridges can use a battery but not to cool I know it's counterintuitive, right? If it's not cooling, what is it doing? It's just maintaining the temperature. The idea is that if you're towing a trailer or you're traveling in your van and you have an absorption fridge in it, you will set it to 12 volts just while you're traveling and you won't open the door. <laughs> if you open the door, you've ruined it. You cannot keep your fridge at the proper temperature using 12 volts if you open the door. So that's why they came out with two-way fridges, which are just shore power and propane because the 12 volt just really doesn't work you know it's only good for maintenance now these fridges are not something you can just go buy at the store and plug in and be done they require an extensive insulation they must be vented and there are two ways to vent them you can either have two holes in the outside of your van that's the way my scamp does it or you can have a hole in the outside of the, of the van or the, the rv and then a vent on the roof which is very very common in rvs Either way works fine, but you need that air to circulate through two different vents, and this requires cutting a lot of holes. Plus, you have to have propane and at least one kind of electrical, if not two. Installation is a major issue. Also, they're not exactly cheap, but what they are is flexible. You can use them with shore power, you can use them with a generator, you can use them with gas, and they were traditionally seen as the best refrigerators for boondocking. And they're very common still, so you probably have seen these. The third way 
to have a fridge in your van and again going through history here is well to get a household fridge and just make it work now these days if you have enough batteries and you have an inverter a lot of people will just go get what's called a dorm fridge this is a you know a little cubicle fridge and put it in their van and that will actually work just fine these fridges are not designed for this you're going to have to do some modifications like you're going to have to find a way to keep the door closed and you're going to have to make sure they're somewhat level because these fridges are not designed to move around all that much but they absolutely will work. There are some very well-known van lifers out there who use this method. And a lot of RVs now actually come with just household refrigerators in them because we have made advances that make that possible. But even in the old days, some RVs had these because they would just assume that you'd have shore power. Now, the advantages of these are that they're very simple. <laughs> you just put them in and uh, they're fairly affordable. You can get a dorm fridge for well under a hundred bucks and some of them have little freezers in them and that might be all you need. Now you also have to have the expense of the batteries and the inverter and you have to install that, but that's a separate thing. Now we have to talk about a type that I really don't like, the thermoelectric cooler. You'll see these often at truck stops and they look very affordable. It says, you know, refrigerator 12 volts can also heat. That's the key, that's what you look for. These things are powered by a Peltier device and they make no noise because there's nothing moving in them. It's an electronic device that moves heat from one side to the other and it's reversible. That's why it can be a heater as well as a cooler. There's two basic problems with these things and I don't recommend them at all. I don't recommend you buy one, flat out. First is they use an incredible amount of power. They use so much power that you really shouldn't use them on batteries at all unless you have a whole lot of batteries and a good way to recharge them. They might be acceptable if they're in the car with you while you're driving. Like if you wanted to have like a six pack near you while you're driving, they might be okay for that, but that would be it. The other problem is that they only can cool 30 degrees below the ambient temperature. So let's say it's 90 degrees out. That means it's going to be 60 degrees inside this fridge and that temperature encourages spoilage. If you have any kind of meats or anything like that stored in there, that's just plain dangerous. So these things are affordable. They look nice. They have a big interior space for the size of them. They're quiet. I mean, they're very attractive, but the problem is they don't work very well. I highly recommend you skip to the next option. Now the fifth way, and this is what I recommend, is a 12 volt compressor fridge. These have come a long way in the last few years and I've owned four of them and uh, they just work. You don't need an inverter. All you have to do is give them 12 volts and that can come straight off your leisure battery. They don't use very much power and they're not very expensive. Their only drawback that I can see is that they very temperature like they'll have a five to ten degree temperature variance which is kind of a lot so if you need something that needs to be kept exactly at the right temperature mm, this isn't for you but if you need something kind of kept cool enough yeah they work great now the standard affordable ones the ones that don't cost very much money don't have a freezing option or they will be all freezer or all refrigerator but if you want to have say cold soda and some ice cream these aren't going to help you. You have to pick one or the other and set the fridge that way. But these are 
excellent. I, I honestly, I've had four of them, and uh, all of them have performed wonderfully. And they are designed to be moved around, so you can plug them into a Jackery and use them like a portable cooler. They're awesome. Now, there's a sixth type that I'm adding in here, and that is an alteration of the 12-volt compressor fridge. And that is one that has separate bays for frozen and cold food. Now, there's two different ways they do this. One is that they just have one compressor, and you'll have two compartments, and one compartment is a little bit warmer than the other. But you can't set the temperature separately. This is actually true for the absorption fridges, too. Some of them have no freezer, some of them have a little tiny freezer, and some of them have a separate freezer. But you can't set the temperature separately. One is just cooler than the other. There are 12-volt compressor fridges, and I have one, and I love it, that let you set them differently. My Bodega fridge, which I've reviewed, and I'll have a link in the show notes to my review, has a separate cool section and a separate frozen section. And to me, this is the pinnacle of van life fridges. Not specifically this one. I mean, they did send me one to review, and I reviewed it and all that. I'm just talking about my personal experience here is that with this thing, I have a low-power device that isn't terribly expensive that lets me have ice cream and cold soda. <laughs> That's kind of the, the peak experience in refrigerators. That is where I think you should be looking. If you're looking to do a fully built-out van with all the comforts of home, look for a fridge. And the chest-style ones, I know people find them inconvenient, but they are more efficient. Look for one with separate freezer and separate refrigerator and then separate temperature controls. So you can have a freezer and a fridge or two fridges or two freezers or whatever you want. It really is the best of all possible worlds. And here's a pro tip. If you want a freezer and you want a refrigerator, let's say you already bought one of the little Alpacools and it's just a refrigerator, but now you really want a freezer, buy another Alpacool. You can have two. They don't have to be the same device. You could have your freezer be under your bed, say, and a little bit harder to access, and then have your refrigerator be up front. Have two devices. Yes, it will draw more power than just one device, but not all that much. And then you also have a backup. If you're on a long overlanding trip and one of them break, well, you still got the other one. You can use that. So that's an option too. So that's all the different ways I know of of keeping food cold in your van. You have to pick the one that's right for you. Van life news. New feature here, folks. Happy to have your feedback on it. But let's talk about some news that's come up in the last few weeks. Uh, remember Westphalia vans? These were the fancy Volkswagen bus vans that had the pop-up camper. And they had running water. And there was refrigerator and a heater. And these were like the best little weekend camper there was. And some people live in them full-time. You know, like Combi Life, is, for example. He's not in a specifically Westphalia. But the dude has basically lived in his van for over 10 years now. And it's been a Volkswagen bus. Well, they're back. Except they're not. I was very disappointed to actually read the article. The title of the article is Westphalia Van Returns to North America. And then I found out that, no, it's not being built on a Volkswagen. And the Westphalia brand has been sold to a company that does build-outs. So basically, it's a low roof with a pop top and a bunch of stuff in it. It's just another company building out. And while that's a good thing, and I wish them success, and I hope people will patronize them if that's what they're looking for, it's not the same thing we all have been asking for for so many years, which is to bring back... <laughs> Small, medium-sized camper vans. I mean, I think there's a big market for them, and because of the chicken tax and automakers not having a lot of foresight into this, well, 
we, we don't have that right now. Another news item in St. Petersburg, Florida, they're cracking down on van life. At least that, that's how they put it. The name of the article is City Officials Look to Curb Van Life. Oh, very clever writers there. Basically, they're trying to pass an ordinance that says if you have a vehicle that looks like a camper van or an RV... You can only park for four hours in the city. They don't want you parking there overnight. But they're having trouble because they want to let people with regular vans or work vans park overnight. So they're trying to come up with language that lets them distinguish. And, well, we're probably going to talk about stealth vans a little bit in the future, but um, this is where stealth vans come from. People who want to, like, get around these rules by having a van that looks like a work van or just a regular passenger van. So St. Petersburg is trying to make it hard, and, yeah, it's a difficult problem. This is one of the big issues with trying to do van life in cities is that, one or two vans isn't a problem, but when 40 show up and they park in the expensive parts of town, people notice, they get upset, and they pass new laws. And, well, that's what's happening in St. Petersburg right now. And finally, some more bad news, but it's actually going to turn into good news, hopefully. Fuel prices are looking like they're going to keep going up, at least in the short term. Uh, there's an organization called the U.S. Energy Information Administration, yet another government agency, and their job is to kind of predict the cost of fuel. And, uh, well, they've bumped up the costs. Right now, they're saying that diesel costs an average of $4.31 a gallon, which is actually more than I'm paying, which I find odd. Usually, Illinois is the most expensive. And they're saying that that's actually going to go up in the short term. And they're blaming the conflict in Russia and Saudi Arabia for holding back production. And, you know, it's very complicated. It's global economics that affects fuel price. And right now they're not favorable. However, the prediction for next year is that we're going to see a little bit of room. We'll see. This also varies regionally. Like right now we're in fall harvest season. So in places with a lot of tractors, that actually is making fuel prices go up because all these tractors out there are using a lot of fuel. And in the Northeast, where people heat their homes with fuel oil, which is not that far off from diesel that also drives prices because the same plants that produce diesel have to produce that fuel there's competition for the same distillates as they call it yeah it's expensive out there in the road uh, i know i am spending a whole lot more in diesel than i was just a few months ago and you adjust it's just another expense so that's the news for this week hopefully i'll have happier news next week <laughs> Tech Talk. So I got a question from Mr. Brian Dunning, who has come up a lot on this podcast. And I don't know exactly what he's doing, but he bought a marine deep cycle battery. You know, this is one of the common types of battery. The, the a traditional kind of battery actually used in RVs and vans. And there are some places where one of these batteries is better than lithium, but we're not going to get into that discussion right now. But he was trying to figure out how many amp hours it had, and it didn't say on it. I mean, the label didn't say, it just had CCA. So what the heck is that? Well, CCA stands for cold cranking amps, and that is a formula. And I have it written down here, so I will read it to you exactly. Cold cranking amps shows how well the battery performs in colder temperatures. Cold cranking amps states how many amps the 12-volt battery delivers at zero degrees Fahrenheit for 30 seconds. Obviously, this is an old term. So that's CCA. It's how many amps the battery can kick out over 30 seconds 
at 12 volts at zero degrees Fahrenheit. Now there's another number some of these have, which is MCA, which is marine cranking amps, which is the same formula, except they change the temperature. <laughs> that one is for zero degrees Celsius. I don't know, but okay. We don't normally care about that stuff because we're more focused on leisure batteries that we're not using to crank anything in most cases. So how do we convert that to amp hours? Well, it turns out that the formula is you take your cold cranking amps and divide by 7.25, and that will give you the amp hours. It's that simple. It may not be completely accurate. There's all kinds of factors in batteries and temperature, etc. But it gives you a ballpark. Now, important thing to note, a battery that says cold cranking amps on it is probably not lithium, almost assuredly isn't lithium. And that means that you have to cut the amp hours in half. This is just true of what are called flooded cell batteries. So let's say you have a flooded cell battery that has 100 amp hours, and it's even written on it, 100 amp hours. That means you can use 50, because if you go beyond 50%, it damages the battery. It causes sulfation, it causes the plates to change the chemistry, and it often can't be fixed. So whenever you're using a battery where you have to convert cold cranking amps to amp hours, even though using this formula will give you the technical amp hours, remember that you can only use half of them. And that's one of the big advantages of lithium is that you can use almost all of them. You should probably stick at 80% of your amp hours just to be safe, but a lithium battery, the amp hour rating is much more accurate to how much power you actually have. So I hope I didn't confuse you. I'll have a link in the show notes with the formula that explains it. But all you have to remember is cold cranking amps divided by 7.25 gives you your amp hours. Product review. So the folks at Strikehold actually, out of the blue, sent me two cans of Strikehold. Actually, one is a can that you spray, and one is a, a bottle that you has a pump spray, so no pressure. Now, what is Strikehold? Well, I had not heard of this product, and apparently it's big in Australia. And it is a lubricant cleaning fluid that people compare to WD-40, but I can tell you right now, it is very, very different from WD-40. This stuff is a totally different formula, and it was invented basically to keep military equipment safe and lubricated, and by safe, I mean safe from rust. It's apparently popular with people who clean guns a lot, and that's not something I do very often, so I can't really speak to that. So I decided to evaluate the product based on how good it was for van life. What are the things we need in van life that require cleaning and lubrication and rust protection? Let's take a step back here and look at WD-40. WD-40 is a great product. It has 8 million uses, and I'm sure you have a can in your van. If you don't, you probably should. But there's one thing WD-40 is used for that it's really not good for, and that is lubrication. So if you have a squeaky door and you spray it with WD-40, it'll stop squeaking for like a day or two. <laughs> and in fact, what it will do is it'll dissolve all the grease that's in there because WD-40 is actually a solvent. And then the squeak will be worse and it can actually damage the hinges. If you actually spray WD-40 on hinges in a house, you'll start to get these black marks where the decomposed WD-40 and grease kind of start to leak out. It's not great for that. It's good for very short-term lubrication, but nothing long-term. 
Strike hold is completely different in that regard. Strike hold leaves an oily film. Now, it's not super oily. It's not like if you sprayed motor oil on it. It's nothing like that. But it does leave a little bit of a sheen, and that is a permanent or at least a long-term lubrication. So I tried it on a whole bunch of different things. One thing I tried it on was a squeaky door. I have a squeaky door in my sprinter because that's the kind of a sprinter thing. And I sprayed it all over and yeah, it made the squeak go away. And now we're oh, a week and a half, two weeks later and yeah, still no squeak. So all right, it worked for that. Another thing I used it for was my sliding door. Now, I will say something nice about Sprinter Vans. Their sliding door mechanisms are great. That door just shuts. Compared to my NV200, where I had to slam it all the time, Sprinters really nailed their sliding doors. But lubrication is still nice sometimes. I mean, I, I got sand in there once because I had a sandbag spill in the van and all that. So I sprayed the slider up and down, and basically everything that moved with strike hold and the door is it's like brand new it's like a dream the door just glides shut it needs very little pressure and i credit that not only to the sprinter design but the strike hold certainly helped now i have another issue with my van like i've said my van was an ambulance and had lots of stickers on it and i've talked about trying to remove the darn stickers and how hard it was and I've tried everything to get this residue off, and nothing I have found will get the stuff off easily. I've tried all the goo-gons and goof-offs, and I've tried WD-40. I've tried gasoline. I've tried everything I can think of, and there's always this little residue left. But you know what? I'm amazed at this. The strike hold actually took it off. I used a microfiber cloth and a bit of strike hold, and it took a little bit of work, but it removed all that annoying leftover residue. And I feel like I finally, for the first time since I've had the van, solved the sticker problem. So big thumbs up to strike hold there. Now, I drive my van a lot, and I've got a lot of bugs on the front of it. So I was like, Eh, why not try strike hold for removing the bugs? And uh, one of the places that was real obvious to try was the mirror. So I have two mirrors, right? I figured I'd do a comparison. So I took some strike hold, put it on that same rag, and wiped it off. And I'll tell you what, it cleaned that mirror right up. I, it, the mirror looks like it's brand new. And I compared it to the other one on the other side. And wow, what a difference. Now I thought, okay, well, if it'll clean the bugs off the outside of the mirror, what about the glass? So I sprayed some strike hold on the glass and no, don't do this. This is bad. <laughs> because like I said, strike hold leaves an oily film behind and that's what you want. And that is not something you want on glass. So don't use strike hold on glass. That is not a good thing. I also used it on my plastic trim, and it did clean it. It was good for that, and the plastic trim looked great, but it didn't last. Uh, and that's okay. I didn't expect it to, but I did a comparison where I did one half of the front of the van with strike hold, and I left the other half alone. And honestly, after a day or two, they looked about the same. Uh, the bugs were gone. It was good for that. But um, it's not a rejuvenator for plastic or anything like that. Locks are another place to consider strike hold over WD-40. You can spray your locks with WD-40, but again, you're spraying a solvent in there. It's not really what you want. You want something that's going to leave an oil. And I haven't had a good chance to really test this out over time. But I can tell you that the lock mechanisms work very smoothly 
after spraying the strike hold in there and a week later they still move very smoothly so i think they're going to be excellent for locks and i think they're also going to help with freezing issues because like wd-40 strike hold also displaces water so i'm very confident that it's going to be good for that strike hold is dielectric which means you can spray it on live electrical connections and you can spray it on any electrical connection and you don't have to worry about it causing any problems so i sprayed my plugs and that is part that gets filthy and it causes problems and spraying the strike hold in there made it much easier to plug in and unplug and it's now it's a lot cleaner so i feel good about that i also sprayed my hitch mechanism on the tongue of my scamp and i coated the trailer connections with it and i think that is really a good application for this stuff much better than wd-40 also as a test i found an old c-clamp i had in the garage i don't know where this thing came from but it's old and rusty and it was really hard to turn so i sprayed it down with the strike hold and that loosened it up i was able to turn it and i was like okay well you know i think wd-40 would have done that too the real test is what happens if i leave it out in the rain for a week so as it happened it rained here almost all week and i left this just solid piece of iron out there after spraying it with strike hold and it's not perfect but the, it didn't rust and most importantly the mechanism still turns very smoothly so i know the strike hold protected this thing and that is what they advertise that they do so points to them for that finally the last thing i did and this was probably the most important thing to me was i sprayed my leatherman with it now, if you've owned a Leatherman or a similar type of tool, you'll find that they bind up. The little tools get hard to move, dirt gets in there and whatever. Some products would leave a residue, like 3-in-1 oil would kind of make it work, but there would always be this little bit of oil leaking out. It was kind of gross. So I tried it with Strikehold, and I swear nothing has made the Leatherman more smooth and easier to use than Strikehold. I just sprayed the heck out of it, wiped it off with a rag, and my Leatherman, which is heavily used and now several years old, is like new. So... Should you guys get strike hold? It's up to you. I mean, it's another liquid chemical that you can have in your van that's going to help you with certain things. And I definitely think it is helpful for all the things I mentioned here. And for me, I'm very, very happy to have it in my van. So there's two ways to get it. You can get it on Amazon like everything else. Or the folks at Strikehold gave me an affiliate code, which will give you a discount if you buy it straight from them. So I'll have links to all that in the show notes. I'll have links to their websites. Strikehold is apparently trying to make a name for itself in the U.S. market, and I think it's a pretty good product. It did a number of things for me that I couldn't find another product to do, and I'm going to keep it in my van, and you might like to too. Tales from the road. So I went to Africa with a bunch of folks in 2016, and we were in South Africa, and we went from Johannesburg, or Jayburg as they call it, to Kruger National Park. And of course we got there by bus, and we, you know, we had a tour bus, and it was just our group, and you know, everything was fine. It was a great trip. But coming out of Kruger, something really unusual happened. We were just, you know, minding our own business, driving on what to me was the wrong side of the road. And behind us, this motorcycle pulls up and turns on these flashing lights. And it was, or at least appeared to be a motorcycle cop. So we're looking like, well, wonder what's going on here. This is, you know, I, it, we're in a bus. I don't think we were speeding, but, you know, I don't know South African laws. Maybe we we're missing a permit. I have no idea. So the bus driver pulls over 
And the guy in the motorcycle kind of pulls up to the door in his motorcycle, which I thought was a little bit unusual. That's not how they would have done it in the United States. Gets off his motorcycle and goes up to the door. And the driver had opened the door already. I'm a little bit far away. I can't hear the entire conversation, but it's apparently getting a little bit heated. They're speaking to each other in English, and then they switch into Afrikaans. And I don't speak Afrikaans. I'm trying to follow. But what I was hearing didn't make any sense. The police officer was yelling at the driver because they stopped. (laughs) This doesn't make any sense to me. So we had a tour guide with us who spoke fluent Afrikaans and also fluent English, and I pulled him aside, and I didn't want to alarm the group, you know? I'm in one of these situations where I'm leading my group, and they're looking to me to know what's going on, and I'm like, I don't really know what's going on. So kind of have a little private conversation with him, and he explains that this gentleman was an actual police officer, but he was advising people not to stop because there were people disguised as police officers who were stopping vehicles so that they could be robbed. So he was actually doing a public service by not pretending to be a police officer and seeing who would think he... I I don't actually understand the dynamics here, but basically he was saying, don't stop for the police which puts you in a rather difficult position, I would think. What do you do then? Do you just keep driving? Now, after more discussion with our tour guide, he explained that, well, what he's recommending is that you go somewhere public or you actually call the police to see if you should stop, that kind of a thing. Basically, have a way to verify that this guy's actually a police officer. Don't just trust a flashing blue light because we can all buy those on Amazon. (laughs) Anyway, very interesting experience. Um, Not something I've ever experienced in the US, but if someone's flashing a blue light at you and you pull over, how do you know they're actually a cop? I don't know. A place to visit. I know I've talked about this place before, but I'm going to talk about it again because it came up and uh, I, I just think it's a fascinating place. In Estero, Florida, which is on the southwest coast, not too far from Naples, it's not far from Sanibel Island, Fort Myers, that part of the state, there is a park called Koreshin State Park. Now, if you're familiar with the name Koreshin, You may associate it with David Koresh and the Waco cult fire and all that. This is not anything to do with that. But the name, the name does matter because this is associated with another religious group that started in Chicago in the late 1800s. And this group had some unusual beliefs. First off, they believed their members were immortal. You could become immortal if you believed enough. And uh, this was associated with Christianity, although very far on the fringes. They also believed that the world was hollow and that we were living inside of it. Basically, they believed that we lived in a Dyson sphere, although they didn't have the term for that then, where the sun and the moon were inside this hollow sphere, and that all the continents and oceans lined the inside. And they would prove this to people with these devices they had that they called rectilineators. And they were basically these big boards that they would line up over certain distances on beaches which were flat and then they would show that the boards actually curved upwards rather than downwards which is how most of us perceive reality (laughs) and they actually had successful tests of this and said yep look at that 
the world is hollow. A very fascinating thing, but they built this compound in empty, rural, completely nothing southwest Florida of the late 1800s and established this community that was actually a big deal in the area. They had the only working grocery store, the biggest bakery. They actually provided all the power for the area at one point because they have, and it's still there and it still worked, an electric generator that ran off of crude oil. I've didn't even know such a thing was possible, but this thing just ran off crude. It didn't even need to be distilled in any way. They had one other tenet in their belief that was a little problematic for their longevity, which is that no sex. Same problem the Shakers had, and over time, the... well, they died out. <laughs> the immortal people, well, they just kind of didn't live up to standards, apparently, and didn't attain that immortality. In fact, the guy who led the group died and nobody knew what to do because since he was the leader he couldn't possibly have died so they just kind of put him in a bathtub because he maybe was leaking a little bit and um we're waiting for him to get up and uh well he never did so they thought what if we let him rest in a box in the ground and he can like let us know when it's time to come out so so that's where he is now so Anyway, what this means for you is you get to visit this compound, which is now a state park, and it's beautiful. There's, the landscaping's beautiful, there's a river that goes through it, all the buildings are still there, and you get to tour this stuff. And they have a lot of the old objects, like they have a globe that opens up and shows you what the world looks like if you live on the inside. They also have a 97-key piano, which is a, kind of a fascinating whole side subject. And they have some of the rectilineators there, so you can actually see them. Anyway, it's a beautiful place to see. Uh, there's a nominal fee to visit. There's camping nearby. It's just this interesting little bit of history that not everyone knows about. And it was an example of a cult or a religion, depending on your perspective, actually being successful enough to kind of lead the entire community as far as productivity is concerned. And then they all died out. <laughs> Anyway, it's Crescent State Park. It's in Estero, Florida. I'll have a link in the show notes. And I've been there many times, and I think you'll like it. Resource recommendation. So you may have heard that the iPhone, starting with the Model 14, and now we're up to 15, has this feature where it can contact satellites in an emergency. I highly recommend you test this feature. And it'll walk you through the whole thing. It'll show you how to aim at the satellites and then kind of simulate an emergency call. Do this. Take the time to do it now. This feature has already saved a lot of lives. You've got it already. If you haven't owned an iPhone of recent vintage, you already have this. You may as well learn how to use it. For those of you out in the desert southwest or, you know, traveling around into places where there's no cell phone access, this could potentially save your life. And it's free. Now, I imagine they're going to start charging for it in the future. They're still working it out. But, heck, go ahead and learn how to use it. I'll have a link in the show notes for a video that walks you through it. It's not hard. All you need is a clear view of the sky and some time. It is not a fast method of communication. It's not like sending a text. You have to aim the phone and hold it in a certain place for an amount of time, and then you will send messages, and they take time. You're not going to send pictures. You're not going to use this to communicate with anybody except emergency services. But boy, if you need that, 
you're going to be very, very, very glad you have it. And it, like I said, within the first week of them launching this feature, it had already saved somebody's life. Now, I don't know what's going on with Android. I imagine they're going to try to incorporate something like this because, you know, Android, iPhone, they're always leapfrogging each other. One has a feature, the other copies it, etc., etc. So I hope it comes to Android as well, because I think that we will live in a much better world if nearly everybody has in their pocket a way to contact emergency services, no matter where they are in the world, except maybe in a cave. <laughs> You're still going to be in trouble there. Thank you for listening or watching episode 182. A big thank you to all of you who have donated at buymeacoffee.com slash built to go. Because of you, the podcast version of this show does not have any ads. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. Until next week, remember the words of Isabel Eberhardt, who said, A nomad I will remain for life, in love with distant and uncharted places.